for those with serious addictions, alcohol, drugs, food, times of crisis and isolation are even more dangerous. Because large group support meetings are no longer allowed. Recovering addicts have to access meetings through video chats. Just how widespread is methadone treatment in the United States? More than 1,200 clinics treating over 350,000 Americans. Welcome to the first bonus episode of the History of Drugs in Society, where we explore the history of different substances and how we've lived alongside and interacted with them. I'm your host, Eugene Leventhal. Given that the actual historical narratives take a lot of time to research and write, I want to figure out a way to add some extra content in between the monthly episodes. In this week's episode, I'm going to review some things that I've been reading about when it comes to the coronavirus and opioid markets. Specifically, we're going to look at the impacts on both drug markets and on harm reduction and medical support services. Before we get to the actual episode, I want to say that I might end up trying a few different formats when it comes to the bonus episodes. One version, like today's, is a recap of recent news or events. Another version will involve talking to experts about one or maybe a few areas that they focus on. I'm really excited for the latter as I'm just personally interested in talking to experts about their research. I've started reaching out to some folks and I'm hopeful that I'll be able to get an interview episode out later this month or at latest by May. By the end of May, that is. Let me know if you have specific topics you'd like to hear about and what you think about these different structures as they come out. Also, the bonus episodes, unlike the season narrative, will not be exclusive to opioids. I'm going to try to set up interviews on a range of topics from the philosophy of psychedelics, to human enhancement substances, to caffeine, to many others. If you know anyone exploring any substances that alter our state of mind or behavior, let me know. I'm Fancy and I now have a Twitter account in addition to email, so the opportunities for us to connect are endless. If this is the first episode you're tuning into and you're not 100% sure exactly what opioids are, you can listen back to the About This Podcast episode for an overview. If you want to skip the whole me talking about why I'm doing this part, you can just jump ahead to the 10 minute and 57 second marker to hear an overview of terms where I go over opium versus opiates versus opioids. So, what does the coronavirus have to do with opioids in the first place? I'm going to oversimplify things and split this up into two buckets. The first is the impacts on illicit markets, both in terms of those selling and in terms of those purchasing. And the other side will be on the impact on harm reduction and medical support services. So let's begin with the illegal markets, specifically those distributing or selling. There have been reports that Mexican cartels are finding it tougher to source various goods from China, including the precursors they need to make fentanyl and methamphetamines. This is not the only illegal things that the cartels are struggling to get. Along with precursors, fake goods and wares that are usually sold at local markets in Mexico have been hard to source as well, as the production and shipping from China has become more constrained due to the virus. One of the cartels that has supposedly found it challenging to source precursors has been the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación, or CJNG, Jalisco Cartel New Generation. Again, excuse butchering of names. A Mexican radio show called Nación Criminal reported on this in early March, citing a source within the cartel. This could potentially lead to shortages of supply, which was reported on in a Vice article from March. Not only has the overall flow of goods from China slowed down, many commercial international flights have been canceled as well. That means the decreased amount of air traffic makes it a lot easier to spot flights carrying illicit substances. If there really is a strain on the supply of precursors, it may be that there is a decrease in the total available amount of drugs. 
it's also possible that a constrained precursor supply would lead to lower purity potentially. Lower purity can lead to drugs getting cut with different substances, which in turn can lead to an increase in overdoses, even if the overall purity of the drug is dropping. It's important to note that a lower supply doesn't necessarily mean bad outcomes for the cartels overall. For an example here, we're going to look at a very different situation at Afghanistan in the mid-2000s. Their eradication-focused programs proved to not really reduce the amount of cultivation sustainably, as any decreases in production would pretty much immediately snap back, sometimes even to greater numbers, as soon as the campaigns were done. The farmers, frequently who were not affiliated with the Taliban, were those most affected. One of the unintended consequences of the eradication was that it caused droves of economic refugees to flock to the Taliban. I heard from someone who advised those in charge of the eradication efforts that even when the supply did go down, the farmers were the only ones losing out as they lost the chance to pay for their food. Those in the actual business of refining and selling drugs made more money as the price hike outweighed the drop in quantity. So thinking that it's good that the cartels have less precursors, that means less issues, that's not really necessarily well-founded. We can also see how those at the bottom of illicit hierarchies are frequently the worst hit in hard times. I mentioned the example of the farmers in, in Afghanistan, and stepping away from drugs, another example right now is with the local street vendors that are selling these fake goods in Mexico that are coming in from China. Apparently, they are still being charged for protection in weeks when there are no sales. Failure to comply seems to have led to a few instances of abduction and possibly even at least one case of murder. Vendors are supposedly trying to get the local government to call in the Coast Guard, but as of late March, that had not happened. According to Business Insider, there's also evidence, based on seizure rates, that there has not been a decline in the distribution of drugs from Mexico into the U.S., again, at least as of late March. Even if the supply from China is indeed strained, it's possible that the cartels either had a backup supply that might end up lasting them until production rebounds, or that the cartels are able to get some of the precursors from different sources. Aside from the supply of precursors themselves, another factor is how they get their product over the border into the U.S. The border has been closed to non-essential business as of late March. I would assume that that has to have some impact on smuggling, though data has been hard to find so far. Strains on the supply of fentanyl could also lead to an increase in the use of other substances. Whether that's non-pharmaceutical opioids such as heroin or other drugs such as cocaine, which has actually had very high production in recent years. Even if measures are put in place to police the Caribbean, which is where the bulk of the main sea and air routes smuggling cocaine into the U.S. are, traffickers would most likely just find new overland opportunities through Mexico. One example of the pricing changes comes from episode 15 of the Crackdown podcast, where they spoke to someone who worked at Vandu, which is the Vancouver area network of drug users, who reported increases in street-level prices of cocaine already going up by 25 to 50% in some cases. As a quick aside, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard Crackdown yet, please go listen. Their tagline is, quote, the drug war covered by drug users as war correspondents. Though their focus is mainly on British Columbia, they put out really high-quality reporting and stories related to drug usage, and they've also worked a lot in the community there to actually affect positive change. Whether or not there will be an increase in the total sales of cocaine regardless of price changes is dependent on how constrained the fentanyl and methamphetamine supplies will be. If cartels and other major drug trafficking organizations have their drug revenues fall, 
it's reasonable to assume that cartels will look to other illegal activities, potentially kidnapping or extortions, to make up for some of the revenue shortfall. Another wrinkle in all of this is the fact that the impacts of COVID-19 in Mexico are still to be seen, so who knows what new challenges might arise there. I say this because in March there were reports that some coronavirus cases may have been mistakenly or intentionally mislabeled as atypical pneumonia. One governor in a state in central Mexico had said that poor people were not going to be affected because they had built up higher immunities, which is something that has zero scientific basis. By the end of March, experts were saying that the measures taken by the end of the month were, quote, too little, too late. So if and when the impacts of COVID are more intensely felt across the country, who knows how this will affect the operations of cartels. But it's not just the cartels that have had some changes. We can also look to the dark web markets to see impacts on availability and pricing. There are reports of some dark web drug suppliers writing about the challenges presented by the coronavirus. Mid-level distributors who would source from China are having trouble getting their supplies restocked. There are some signs that the problems in the markets are caused more by shipping disruptions rather than the actual issues of precursor availability. The Daily Dot found a statement from one vendor that read, Please do not worry when making an order from us. We live far away in nature and no people around us. And went on to explain that the shipping times were the unclear part now. According to a cryptocurrency surveillance and analytics firm called Chainalysis, the value of funds moving into known dark web market-associated accounts has dropped in recent weeks. The seven-day average of the value of Bitcoin sent to merchant services fell from $7 million to $4.5 million in the five weeks to the end of March. Meanwhile, the value of Bitcoin sent to gambling services declined from $5 million to $3 million. Now let's move over from the supply side of the illicit markets to the user side. For these markets to exist, people need to be buying drugs. Some of the realities of substance use and abuse is that it's not easy to just stop. Especially with opioids, dope sickness is very much a physical thing in addition to the mental components. It's easy to pretend that these are people who are simply, quote-unquote, making bad choices and need to, quote, make better choices for themselves. The reality is that addiction is immensely complicated, and one of the most important parts of dealing with it involves community. We'll get to this more in depth when talking about the impacts on harm reduction services, but first let's talk about how some of those buying substances illegally might be affected. Social isolation might potentially lead to increases in overall usage given the additional stresses that all of us are feeling right now. Social isolation and market changes aren't the only factors affecting users or those in recovery. It's important to remember that poverty and high employment are correlated with the use of opioids, according to the HHS, or the Department of Health and Human Services. Unemployment has been exploding in the U.S. as of late. In the last two weeks of March and the first week of April, over 17 million people have filed for unemployment. The previous high was just under 700,000. So social isolation is only one of the factors that might lead to an increased usage and, unfortunately, an increase in overdoses. I haven't found any reports of usage yet, but there are some cities and counties across the country already seeing an increase in the amount of overdose deaths. Ocala in Florida and four separate counties in New York State have all seen larger numbers of overdoses relative to this time last year. That, in turn, might increase the amount of people trying to use drugs. So as stresses in the form of social isolation, potential financial difficulties due to unemployment, or any of the other stresses that are just arising now, it's not out of the realm of possibility that there are going to be more people trying to use drugs. 
given that people selling any illegal substance operate outside of the law and regulations, it's safe to assume that as long as dealers have access to a supply, they're probably going to keep dealing. Maybe some will switch to try to sell online more, but that's not necessarily guaranteed. So who knows what percentage of dealers are actually taking precautions or not? According to Vice, there have been examples of some heroin dealers in the UK dressing up as delivery people, joggers, or nurses to not stick out while being out and about during this time. So some are clearly taking precautions to be less conspicuous, but some may actually be taking COVID-19 very seriously and are just adjusting to the new realities as well. I read a message from a cannabis delivery company in New York. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it was quite long, but it started with, We hope this message finds you all in good health. It goes on to overview the corona situation, mentions the fact that they have postponed business until they implemented a new protocol, and reminds their community of their commitment to quality. From there, they talk about moving to a pre-order system, and now I'm going to quote some of the specifics. All orders will be pre-packaged and sealed in opaque bags. The money must be prepared in advance and in an envelope or an opaque bag. Runners will not enter the apartment and will leave the bag at the door. The runner will be wearing an N95 mask, fresh gloves, and will be practicing good hygiene. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that there are certain dealers or dealing organizations that are taking this quite seriously and are adding some precautions to their usual business. However, there's also no reason to assume that that's happening across the board. And users have also been aware of potential supply disruptions. So there have been various accounts of people stockpiling, at least those who could afford to and had access to the supply. If history serves as any indicator, if the price goes up as the overall supplies go down, there might be an increase in drug-related crime. Concurrently, if the purity goes down and dealers start to cut their existing supply with other substances, overdoses might rise. There also may be some cases for those individuals who have stockpile that maybe some of them have such an increase in anxiety that they might turn to greater usage, which might turn to a raise in overdoses. Depending on how emergency services and those administering Narcan are affected by COVID-19, there may be additional challenges in getting people the chance to come back from their overdose. In case you haven't heard of Narcan, it's pretty much an opioid overdose reversal drug. That really covers the information that I could find on the impacts on the illegal markets. So now let's transition to look at the impacts of coronavirus on those seeking harm reduction and medical support services. Individuals relying on community meetings, needle exchanges, MATS, which are medication-assisted treatment programs, such as methadone clinics, or any other type of support service are also encountering a lot of difficulties when it comes to accessing the services that they need. According to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, there were over 3.6 million people who received illicit drug or alcohol treatment in 2014. So we're not talking about a few thousand people here and there. This quite literally affects millions of people. In terms of how we're going to explore this part of the episode, I'm going to break this down into the overall challenges being faced by those seeking support services, the policy impacts, and the ability to access methadone or related products. So let's start with the support services. Many clinics are adding new precautions. Some are checking the temperature of anyone coming in, staff included, and are monitoring various symptoms. According to WBNS in Columbus, Ohio, Social distancing measures led to people standing six feet apart outside. This, in conjunction with the social distancing inside the facility, ended up leading to multiple hour waits and some people even leaving in frustration. 
it has been common for people to wait five to six hours to receive the services they need. And such problems aren't unique to Columbus. Many such facilities around the country are facing similar challenges. In St. Louis, workers from the Missouri Network for Opiate Reform and Recovery had to cancel their usual in-person meetings and their usual community visits to distribute naloxone and clean syringes. Substance abuse prevention organizations in Kalamazoo, Michigan, have also been reporting challenges for their clients to get the services and support they need. In a clinic in Olympia, Washington, patients are being met outdoors to help make it easier for them to access services, at least as of April 1st. One potential result from having less access to services such as needle exchanges is that there could be an increase in diseases that can be transmitted when sharing or using dirty needles. Fortunately, in Pennsylvania, needle exchange programs have been deemed essential and are continuing to run. The Lancaster Harm Reduction Project is going so far as to include soap and wipes with the supplies they hand out. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services also issued guidelines that involve those showing symptoms not showing up to community facilities. This may not be feasible for everyone given the realities of substance use and abuse. One attempt to better deal with this involves telehealth or having appointments remotely. As shelter-in-place rules came into effect, virtual alternatives were the only realistic ones. One organization called Recovery Go has been using video conferences for counseling and generally treating patients. However, using remote options presents its own issues related to patient privacy. Acts have been put into effect that loosen the restrictions on the ability to communicate over informal video channels. The relevant act when it comes to this kind of privacy in the healthcare space is HIPAA, or the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, and part of that act includes restrictions on what software could be used and what procedures would need to be followed when working with patients in order to upload their personal data. Loosening these laws has provided more telehealth options for those in need. As an example of the use of telehealth services, St. Louis-based Assisted Recovery Centers of America saw a 30% rise in telemedicine calls in late March to early April. Another example comes from Ideal Option, which focuses on evidence-based treatment for addiction and operates in North Dakota. They have started offering virtual treatment, longer prescriptions, and are shifting to home urine testing and are really trying to offer more at-home lab services. Another impact of the guidance from SAMHSA or the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, was that patients would be able to access 28-day take-home supplies of opioid treatment programs such as methadone. In certain parts of the country, such as Oklahoma, statewide executive orders were even put in place to make it possible to prescribe certain opiates and other controlled substances. Additional guidance from SAMHSA stated that first-time methadone patients still had to come into a clinic, while first-time buprenorphine users could have a remote appointment if necessary. By early April, a letter that was co-signed by over 320 addiction specialists was sent to Eleanor McCain-Katz, who is the assistant secretary over at SAMHSA. This letter called for more changes that would allow for specialists to be able to take in new patients for methadone remotely. As an example of why that's important, one user in Brooklyn who tested positive for COVID-19 still had to go into the clinic for his first appointment. In the UK, measures were put in place by early April that would allow pharmacists to hand out certain substances such as methadone or buprenorphine without prescription to patients who already received those medicines as part of their treatment. This approach presents its own challenges as this places the decision of whether or not to give a patient more addiction-related meds onto the pharmacist, which is not something they're trained to do. And it's also important to talk about Narcan again. The Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition has been distributing large quantities of Narcan recently, which is fantastic. 
This is especially crucial for those who are still purchasing illegal drugs, as mentioned earlier, and that's something that's being noted in certain neighborhoods across Pennsylvania. Here in the state, a male-based Narcan program has been introduced to help make the life-saving drug available to those who are socially distancing. Three county prisons have even signed up for this program and plan on giving a dose of Narcan to those being released, given the high risk of overdose for users who have just been released from incarceration. In Michigan, a virtual Narcan training program has been put in place. Granted, it does still sound as though those who complete the training are not going to be able to receive the Narcan until the stay-at-home orders are lifted, though there might be some changes to that in the near future. A separate issue that has arisen is related to the access of pharmaceutical opioids for COVID patients in hospitals. The American Medical Association, the American Society of Anesthesiologists, the Association for Clinical Oncology, and the American Hospital Association all signed a letter to the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, asking to loosen annual quotas for pharmaceutical manufacturers. The letters sent to the DEA claim that there has been an increased demand for medicines such as morphine, hydromorphine, fentanyl, and other opioids. If you're wondering why are opiates even relevant for coronavirus patients, it's to help safely provide them ventilators as well as to help deal with other pain-related issues that arise. In New York, the prescription of certain opioids has already risen by almost 2,000%. That's partially driven because the alternative method that had been used prior actually had a higher chance for spreading the infection of COVID. The DEA reduced the total fentanyl quota for 2020 alone by over 30%. Granted, that was all before the outbreak. Since then, a senior official from the DEA told Reuters that the agency believes the national quotas are, quote, completely sufficient. At the same time, the DEA has raised quotas for the amount of injectable fentanyl that Pfizer is allowed to produce. The agency went on to relax controls for manufacturers overall, allowing a 65% increase while the pandemic continues. Many of the companies making these medications are on a just-in-time schedule, so that might present its own challenges in ramping up production. There's also an international component to this given how many modern pharmaceuticals are manufactured outside of the U.S. India, which is the world's main supplier of generic drugs, has lifted export restrictions on 24 ingredients and related medicines. This decision apparently came a few days after Trump and Modi had a call, so I wonder if the president applied direct pressure. That would make sense given the extent of the impacts of the coronavirus and that India had also placed restrictions on testing kits, ventilators, and protective gear needed by those working with patients. This isn't the first time that the question of drug shortages has arisen after some kind of emergency. After Hurricane Maria, the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, had a task force put together after the hurricane to address the risks that arose from drug shortages during it. Unfortunately, few of their recommendations were actually acted on, that is until March of this year when two of the recommendations were put in as part of the overall stimulus package that got passed. But let's come back to non-corona-related opioid usage. A final element of the intersection of COVID and opioids that I want to cover relates to misinformation and disinformation. The Washington Post released an article titled, Police are issuing fake warnings of meth tainted with coronavirus. Public health experts say, please stop now. This was in response to a few Florida police departments that posted on Instagram and social media saying that meth might be contaminated and they would be happy to test it. For some proper disinformation, we can turn to the one and only Alex Jones. Robert Evans wrote an article for Bellingcat where he highlighted some gems from Jones. On January 28th of this year, quote, Even Mainline News is saying now that it looks like the virus has been stolen by Chai Chinese communists, out of a Canadian lab, end quote. 
Nowhere was any news saying that to my knowledge, but okay. On February 7th, he started claiming that Trump might have actually launched coronavirus as a retaliation for fentanyl. Okay. By the end of February, he had gone on to blaming Obama for this, saying, and I quote, Why would the U.S. sell this to the Chicoms and then five years later it's released? Clearly so the Chicoms can crack down and take over Taiwan. As a quick aside, I'm also going to plug Robert's other podcasts because they're a bunch of my favorites. Behind the Bastards, It Could Happen Here, and the new one, which is Women's War. None of them are drug-specific, but they're all fantastic. Anyway, if you want to hear more about the wonderful world of Alex Jones in this context, check out Robert's Bellingcat piece, which will be linked in the show notes. In case that hurt your brain like it did mine, here's a random news article titled To Distract You from Alex Jones. Quote, Heroin, cocaine, and baby alligator seized after Florida detectives locate stolen car. Four adults and a teen were arrested in incident. Oh, Florida. To wrap this up, one thing that I find encouraging so far in this response to coronavirus is the indication that we as a society are willing to take drastic action when there's a worthy enough cause. If that's the case, why have we watched over 700,000 people die from opioids over the last two decades with pretty meek responses? In 2018, the federal government spent $7.4 billion on addressing the opioid crisis. That might seem like a lot, but Gary Mendel, founder of the advocacy group Shatterproof, estimated that dealing with the opioid crisis would need roughly $50 billion a year. If we end up going into a recession, what are the odds that we will actually spend the necessary amount of money that we need to make sure that we deal with the opioid crisis, in addition to this new emergency in the form of coronavirus? I'd be quite the downer if I stopped there, so to end on a more hopeful note, I can't help but think that we as a society and as a species are going to take a long, hard look at ourselves in the coming months and years. Granted, we could just all get distracted when we're allowed to leave our homes and go out again, but I really do think that the effects of this pandemic will live on well beyond the specific virus. Right now, our ability to build community is strained. We're all facing conditions that can increase anxiety and can surface the darkest parts and recesses of our own consciousness and subconscious. Despite the fact that there has been no shortage of signs of people reacting with hate towards others, especially towards certain minority groups, there have also been many signs of people finding ways to help each other as they can. I really hope that this current situation will make us collectively reconsider how we prioritize community, how we view mental health and intern drug addiction, and that we can use this experience as a shared trauma of sorts that we can all grow from, and in turn that we can find more shared humanity between us. Here's to hoping. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. The History of Drugs and Society is written by me, Eugene Leventhal. Credits on the music go out to Blue Dot Sessions. Feel free to reach out on Twitter at Drugs History or over email historyofdis, that's drugs and society, historyofdis at gmail.com. I'm going to add a link to the full transcript with citations in the show notes. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and consider rating on iTunes. Be well and speak soon. Mm-hmm.